Welcome to the ABA Journal Legal Rebels podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future. Stanford Law School professor Deborah Rohde was asked once what she would do if she were named dean of the Harvard Law School. Resign immediately, she responded. I'm too radical. Setting that quip aside, Rohde is an academic's academic, a longtime leading scholar in ethics, but also with other research specialties, such as bias in matters of gender, race, and even beauty, or lack thereof, and even writes critically about the legal academy itself. By the way, she's also a former president of the Association of American Law Schools. I'm Terry Carter. In this episode of the ABA Journal's Legal Rebels Trailblazers, about people who have changed the practice of law and continue to do so, we're going to talk about how and why law schools just might have come up too short in too many ways for too long. That's how Rhodey sees it. She went straight into teaching law in 1979 after finishing clerkships at the U.S. Second Circuit Court of Appeals and at the U.S. Supreme Court. And she's completed enough visiting professorships at other law schools, including her alma mater, Yale, that she might be a good candidate for an advertisement for extended stay hotels. So never mind the quip about resigning immediately from Harvard's helm. And of course, she's been a guest professor there. Let's ask her some questions about problems and issues in legal education that might provide a blueprint for what we could call the Deborah Rohde Practically Ideal School of Law. Welcome to the show, Deborah. Thanks so much for having me. Let me begin here. Many believe that legal education is in crisis or a concatenation of crises, though opinions vary on problems and cures. We hear most about rising tuition and falling applications, as well as a weak job market. Are these symptoms of a bigger problem? I think they are. And someone once said that legal uh, education was not a fixer-upper, it's a tear-down. And I'm not sure I'd go that far, but I do think there are structural problems in the way that we educate lawyers that we need to address. And the recent woes are really symptomatic of those broader structural issues. The U.S. News and World Report rankings have tied law schools in knots for decades in a way that has resulted in changes in emphases and goals, as have accreditation standards that you've complained should not be one-size-fits-all. How do rankings and accreditation have a negative impact on law schools? What I think both accreditation and rankings systems do is they force schools to conform to an overly rigid model that, as you and I have both put it, is a one-size-fits-all model that's out of touch with the realities of legal practice today. It just makes no sense to train in the same way someone who is going to go on to Wall Street and do sophisticated financial deals and the person who's going to do divorces and residential real estate closings in a small Midwestern town. And yet we pretend that a single model of legal education in an era of increasing specialization in practice is the only way forward for law schools. We need to have uh, the diversity in legal practice matched by the diversity in legal education structures. So I've advocated for one-year, two-year, three-year programs to help train people to perform different tasks with different levels of expertise and hopefully deliver services at different levels of affordability. Newly minted lawyers are having more and more difficulty finding jobs. 
and applications to law schools are down. Is this cyclical or is there something else at work, something systematic? I think that most analysts of legal education think that we're not going to just cycle out of this latest downturn and we've We need to reset, not to think that we can just soldier through. There are permanent changes in the way that legal services are delivered that are decreasing the need for lawyers, at least lawyers at the higher levels of of income where most of our graduates hope to land. Outsourcing, more lay competition, more technology, all of the evolution of legal practice has reduced the need for high-priced, entry-level graduates. And that's not going to change anytime in the near future. To back up to something from a moment ago, what do the rankings ignore that we should be looking at? Well, the rankings are a highly imperfect proxy for quality of legal education. 40% of the rankings are based on reputation. And the way those surveys are conducted ensures that they're going to get inadequate information in a kind of self-perpetuating echo chamber. So they ask people, you know, who's got the best uh, legal education? And unsurprisingly, when you do this in blind hypothetical surveys, you find people ranking Princeton and MIT at the very top, even though they don't even have law school. So rankings overvalue reputation. They overvalue things like per-pupil expenditures, which drives up the cost of legal education, and they ignore things that are central to the quality of teaching, such as access to clinical education, well-supervised pro bono opportunities, a diverse class. Those aren't adequately captured by U.S. News and World Report rankings. What can diversity do for law schools and the profession? There's a cottage industry of research that indicates that diverse classrooms improve the learning process. They expose people to different perspectives and backgrounds that enrich their education. They better prepare them for work in an increasingly multicultural world. And contrary to what some critics say, affirmative action programs in law schools haven't reduced the quality of applicants by any measurable indices. And those admitted under affirmative action programs do no worse, even in terms of objective matters like um, income and job status. And they also do much better in terms of giving back to the community. So there's a range of ways that diversity both aids the educational process, enhances the profession, and also in a society where law is the path to leadership, we can't afford to leave a third of the talent pool underrepresented, and we can't afford to have a leadership structure that doesn't match the clients and the world it serves. Are there structural problems in legal education itself that prevent diversity? Certainly the over-reliance on GPAs and LSAT scores, which is encouraged by U.S. News and World Report rankings, gets in the way of more robust efforts to increase the diversity of law school classes. 
In something related to that, you've done a lot of research and writing over the years about unconscious biases in race, gender, even physical appearance. Is legal education a good place, a good way to raise awareness of and help eliminate or lessen these biases? I think it is. Um, it's certainly the place at which people's formative views about the profession come into being and law students can benefit either in a class on the legal profession or professional responsibility from exposure to the vast body of research that documents the role that unconscious bias continues to play in, in hampering the progress of women and people of color. Going back to another area we've broached on, how would you change bar exams? Well, bar exams really are responsible for much of the law school's lack of innovation in skills training and other um, areas in which future lawyers would benefit. In many schools where students feel that their courses need to prepare them for the bar exam, they force attention to doctrinal areas in which those students will never practice and which encourage just rote memorization. I'm a member of two bars, and in both instances, the exams tested things like springing and shifting executory interests and uh, what the result should be if the rule against perpetuities that was in effect in 1641 were still in effect. And things that just in an age where technology can help lawyers fill in gaps of doctrinal knowledge, it just makes no sense to force them to memorize those facts for a day or two. It's not a useful way of, of testing competence in practice. And we have no good measures that suggest that bar exams are an effective filtering device. What could or should we just jettison from standard legal education, from specific courses to what I think you've called customs and climate? Well, if we could get bar examiners to test on fewer subjects, we could free up space in the law school curriculum to educate students more effectively in terms of skills and professional responsibility, we make it possible for them to spend more time doing the things that would make them more practice ready. Now, 90% of graduates of law schools feel that their education didn't well prepare them for the realities of practice. And this in a country that has the highest, uh, that spends the most on legal education of any country in the world. So there's a huge mismatch between our expenditure. We have a very long and expensive system of education and the outputs, which is not giving students the practical skills that they need. And we're also not doing a very good job in reinforcing professional values. And most students say that they don't get attention to pro bono work. Most schools don't reward it or make adequate opportunities available to students. And we also know that many schools teach legal ethics as law without the ethics. It's a walkthrough of what the model rules require, but doesn't expose students to the ethical dilemmas that they're actually going to face and the practical pressures that may compromise their judgment. 
and it doesn't encourage them to critically analyze the bar's own ethical rules, which in many instances do more to serve the profession than the public. So I think we need much more reflective and robust systems of professional education, much more emphasis on relatively expensive delivery of practical skills. Only 3% of law schools require a clinic, even though most students think that's the best and most effective way that they learned in law school. So you think it's best obtained viscerally? The inculcation of values and professionalism, to a large extent, would be visceral through practice with mentors, I assume. Well, I think that's one way that you can inculcate professional identity and values. And certainly having clinics pay attention to ethical issues is one way to give students an experience of grappling with those issues in contexts where real-life clients are involved. But I also believe that you can do a lot with simulations and problem methods and other less expensive forms of legal education to expose students to the range of ethical issues that they'll face in practice. And we shouldn't just relegate legal ethics to a single course in the curriculum, as most schools do. That just encourages professors to think about professional responsibility as somebody else's responsibility and to encourage students to do the same. Legal ethics issues arise in all areas of practice, and they ought to figure in all areas of the curriculum. Are law school budgets too tight these days to make significant change in preparing students for the actual practice of law? Well, I think law schools do need to rethink their financial priorities, and we would be much better off if we focused more resources on the teaching mission of law schools and didn't try to force everyone into doing cutting-edge legal research. But also, there are certainly ways of delivering skills education that aren't extremely expensive and that are highly cost-effective. So through simulations, problems, case studies, various forms of interactive learning. And we know that those methods are by far the most effective for adult education. And we fail to institutionalize them in our classrooms largely because the large lectures in a kind of quasi-Socratic styles are relatively cheap and easy to administer. But those lectures too often teach students to think like law professors, not like lawyers. And we need to focus more resources on skills-based instruction and interdisciplinary forms of education. And there's also, I think, a huge missed opportunity to educate students for leadership roles. No occupation produces a higher number of leaders in both the public and private sector than law. And yet, most schools do diddly to prepare students for that role. Very few offer a course in leadership. And while leadership development is a $45 billion industry and is a focus of business education, law schools have come late to the parade. And we're seeing, I think, some of the adverse consequences of that in the way that leaders perform in the real world. One final question. In your ideal law school, would there be a law review as we know them? I think there'd be a law review, but it would look a little different than the one that we now have. It's ironic that we delegate so much 
discretion to relatively uneducated law students to make decisions about the quality of scholarship without any external advice. And and that needs to change. I think law review editors would greatly benefit if they involved some of the faculty as advisors in the editing and selection of articles. Also, I think This is a context in which less would be more the bloated length of law review articles. You can now have 4,800 footnotes in an article on a single section of a security statute. Makes them unreadable. And so many practitioners and judges say that they never look at law reviews any longer. Most research indicates that Close to half of law review articles are never cited by anyone for anything. So to make the genre more accessible and useful to the legal community will require some changes in the way that law reviews operate. There's still great training grounds for students, and they're an opportunity to influence the law for researchers, but they could be substantially improved. And moving to a model that looks a little more like a peer-reviewed journal would be a step in the right direction. Deborah, I want to thank you for joining us today and to thank our listeners. Come again for another episode of the ABA Journal's Legal Rebels Trailblazers podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalRebels.com, LegalTalkNetwork.com, subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download the free apps from ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.